John chapter 12, the apostle writes, Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he was about to betray him, he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would enable us to wisely count the costs of following you. We recognize, Lord, clearly that apart from Jesus Christ being our hiding place, apart from your vengeance coming upon him and destroying him, it must come upon us. And so we ask you to be gracious with us this morning, that you might show us Christ clearly, that we might see him and cultivate in us a love for him just as we see Mary for him so many years ago, we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us as a people for having hearts filled with hate towards you. And instead, Lord, by your spirit, change those hearts of stone into flesh that we might know you and we might see you and we might love you. And this morning, express that love to you in worship. We ask that you would do this great work in us by your grace and your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. you have a Bible, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. The title of the sermon is Costly Choices, and it may be the title that you would think I would use for the passage for next week. Maybe I'll just use it again. Godly choices, costly choices, part two. I taught economics for years, and one of the fundamental teachings in economics is something called opportunity costs. Now, don't, please don't roll your eyes back when I say the word economics. I know that's the natural response to it. It was for me as well. The idea of economics and, and opportunity costs in particular, it's, it's a general teaching that whatever choice you make in life, you lose the value or the cost of making another choice. It's a real simple teaching, even though my students really struggled with it. If on a Saturday I decide to work on my house, then while I'm working on my house, there's a cost attached to it. I can't at the same time, I cannot study my Bible, I cannot pray, I cannot spend time with my children, I cannot go do something that I would say would rather do. There's a cost attached to that choice. All choices in life, to some degree or another, 
involve an opportunity cost. Some are more significant than others. If, if I decide to get married, then I cannot serve Christ faithfully as a single man. If I decide to go to college full-time, then it's going to be very difficult for me to re- work full-time during that same four years. Now, some of these decisions are small. <clears throat> if I decide to have a hamburger, the opportunity cost for that hamburger might be a hot dog. For many, that'll be a small decision. For some of you, it may be a big decision. Other decisions have a much greater weight to them. If you decide to go into the military for five years, the opportunity cost of that will be five years of, say, working a civilian job or going to school or doing something else. There is no arena in life where the opportunity costs are more important and more extreme than the arena of faith, what you believe. The opportunity cost of an atheist is to refuse to believe in God. And there are consequences to that. There are costs to that. The opportunity cost of a Muslim is to refuse to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And there are eternal consequences to that. And that's what makes the opportunity cost, the decisions we make, and the impact that has for all eternity so important in the realm of faith. Because the consequences are eternal, not temporal. By God's grace this morning, I pray that we will see that your relationship with Jesus Christ as friend or foe has an opportunity cost attached to it, and those opportunity costs go on forever and ever. In chapters 1 through 11, if you've been with us here these past several weeks, John the Apostle has been giving us the three-year ministry of Jesus Christ. He's been laying it out. We've, We've learned about Christ. We've learned about his miracles. We've learned about how people are responding to this man who professes to be God, who professes to be the Son of God. And then we get to chapter 12, and chapter 12 for the rest of the book is one week, one week in the, Lord of our Je- of our, uh, in the life of our Lord Jesus. In fact, it's even less than a week. We actually end up on a, on a Sabbath day here, and Christ is killed on Friday. And during this time, what, what many of us call the Passion Week, we see people coming to him, and some believing in him, and some being saved, and others rejecting him. And we see that play out through the entire ministry of Christ. And actually, we could see that play out through the entire history of mankind. Those seeing Christ for who he is and worshiping him, and those rejecting who he is and turning away. In in verse 1 of the gospel, chapter 12, John writes, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So we're back in Bethany. If you remember, Jesus had to flee the area of Jerusalem because they were trying to kill him. He comes back now on the sixth day, which is a Passover day, and he is invited to attend a dinner at Simon the leper's house. And it was probably a dinner in his honor. Mary's there. Martha's there. Lazarus is there. Lazarus, his his friend who was dead, who is now raised, is reclining with him at the table. Simon's there, and of course, the disciples are there as well. And word gets out. Now, Bethany's only two miles from Jerusalem. Word gets out that Jesus is in the vicinity. And remember, from last week, thousands of Jews had gone to Jerusalem to prepare themselves for the Passover. They had to go and they had to exchange money to get the currency into that which they could use to buy animals for the sacrifices. And many went to purify themselves so they could engage in the Passover meal. And so there are literally thousands of people in Jerusalem, and they hear that Jesus is in Bethany. And they say, well, you know what? We want to see this great teacher. 
We want to see this miracle worker. And the multitudes were going out to them. Some were going out to worship him. Some were going out to be entertained by him. Others were trying to find him. They could kill him. There was a death warrant on his head. This particular day, in this particular moment, Jesus is living in the shadow of the cross. And he will for the remainder of the Gospel of John. He's six days away from being the Passover lamb at the Passover meal. He is. His body. He's six days away from ending the old covenant. In fact, this will be the last Sabbath day under the old covenant. Because the next Sabbath day will be recognized in the new covenant of grace and mercy in Christ. He's six days away from his body being broken. Six days away from his blood being spilled. Six days away from the arrest, the beatings, the humiliation, the cross. The worst, he's six days away from being forsaken by his father. He's six days away from experiencing the full vengeance, the full wrath of God that all those who will be redeemed in his blood would and should experience. And it's in these final days that we get to come into this dialogue. These dinners that they had, they were intimate. This was, this was the afternoon or the evening dinner where lots of time was spent. And they would actually recline at the table. They, they understood much better how to sit at a table. They would recline and they would be served and, and they would have dialogue, sometimes for hours around these meals. And so we get to come into Simon the leper's house and we get to see Martha serving in love. And we get to see Lazarus raised from the dead after four days in the tomb. And, and Simon the leper there, he should be Simon the ex-leper because we're pretty sure that Christ healed him. And the disciples there, and there's this grand dialogue that takes place and this incredible anointing by Mary. And I want us to step into it. And I want us to see the costs involved for Mary, the costs involved for Judas, and the costs involved for us and how we relate to this Jesus Christ. I want to do that this morning by looking at three things. One, the cost of love. Two, the cost of hate. And three, the cost of discipleship. The cost of love, the cost of hate, and the cost of discipleship. Let's look first at the cost of love. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, they're, they're sitting around the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What we have here, it's, maybe it's hard for us to understand given the different culture in which we live. This was one of, if not the most extravagant displays of love for Christ in the New Testament by any man. She takes a pound, it's the equivalent of 12 ounces of pure nard. And he said, nard, even the word sounds, it doesn't sound good, right? Josh, kept asking, how was it good that this oil was all over him? It was a glorious thing. It was a, it was a perfumed oil. And to pour this entire bottle upon him, we're told here in the text it was worth 300 denarii. 300 denarii was an entire year's wages or salary. So contemporary U.S. dollars, Fifty to sixty thousand dollars she took and she poured on Jesus. Not only that, in the gospel account of Matthew, we have a parallel telling of the story. It was it was the pure nard was stored in an alabaster jar, which was also very expensive. She sacrifices the jar, she breaks the jar, and we're told in the gospel of Matthew that she pours it all over his head and all over his feet as well. So he's covered with this 
expensive perfume, and it fills the house. And it was intended for that. They, they would actually use it to, to make the house smell better, and women would use it as a beautiful fragrance for themselves. It was used, probably most importantly, for the dead. Back, they, the Jews did not do mummification, and so in the time of, of burial and, and mourning, during that process, they would anoint the body with this very expensive oil to prevent the stench of death from becoming so overwhelming that they couldn't engage in this right process of mourning and burial of their loved ones. Now, given the monetary value of, of this particular oil and what she did, most cultures would look at this as an extreme expression of love. Look at verse 3 again. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It is, I think, the most extravagant expression of love that we see upon Christ, certainly before his resurrection, and I would say after his death and resurrection as well. There's, it's so over the top, there's no concern for who's in the room. There's no concern for the cost of the perfume. She's not concerned about being embarrassed. And yet, simultaneously, it's such a radical display of humility. What does she do with it? She puts it on his feet, and then she washes her feet, but she washes his feet, but not with a towel as they normally would in water. She takes her hair, and she washes Jesus' feet with her hair and the oil. It's extravagant, humble, extraordinary. Over-the-top love and an expression of that love. It's humble. It's service-directed. It is selfless. It's such a beautiful picture. It's a picture that, that I want you to meditate on. I want you to go back and I want you to reread it this week. And I want you to contemplate this extraordinary display of love by Mary to her Savior, to the one she loved most. Judas and others were told in Matthew and Mark... They criticize her for this lavish, lavish display of love, and they rebuke her. But Jesus comes to her aid. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone. And he didn't say that with a soft tone. Those of you who have this weird perception of Jesus walking around in this soft, melancholy tone, he probably said, leave her alone. And then he says, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. Judas tried to use the false pretense of we should have taken the money, taken the perfume, sold it, and then taken the money and given it to the poor. His heart was truly greedy. We'll, we'll look at that in a minute. But Jesus comes to her and he defends two things. One, her lavish display of love. He defends that. He's saying what she's doing is right and what she's doing is glorious. And what underneath this, he knows, God the Father knows, that this, this anointing in Simon the leper's house is a preparation for his burial. What's going to transpire in less than a week? The actual anointing of his body for him entering the tomb. Mary is unashamedly expressing her love before all these men to Jesus, her Savior. And God is showing them, and by his grace showing us, that this is an anointing for the Son. In fact, we know this in Matthew 26. We're told... Jesus said, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So this is Saturday. The following Friday, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would come. They would take Jesus' body off the cross 
and they would prepare it using oils just like this as they prepared to place him in a tomb. It must have been a troubling, a dear and sweet moment for our Lord to to experience this incredible expression of love by Mary and simultaneously so troubling because he knew this this is Christ, this is life himself, this is the giver of life. He knew that he was going to, in a few days, enter a tomb that somebody was going to be carrying his lifeless body and someone was going to be putting that oil on him. The opportunity costs for Jesus loving us means that he could not get out of that end. What we see here, dear saints, I pray, is that true love, when I say that, I mean biblical love, real love, it's always costly. You cannot love someone, really love someone, without there being costs attached to that. For Mary, the opportunity costs were were many here. She gave up so many things in this single moment. You say, well, what? She gave up thousands and thousands of dollars. An entire year of being able to sustain life. And it's not like you could just go down to the grocery store and buy groceries today. I mean, this this was sustaining life for an entire year. She gave up the opportunity to use that perfume on herself or in her home or on a loved one or a family member who would die. She used the entire thing on him. Every drop was used. She spared nothing. She gave up her pride. She, she was ridiculed by not just Judas. Some of the others did as well. That means some of the other disciples, they jumped in and they ridiculed her as well. She gave up her pride. She gave up her dignity. You know, an honorable woman, an honorable Jewish woman, never let down her hair in public. It was considered indecent and by some immoral. And she takes her hair, which was probably tied up, and she undoes it in the presence of all these men. And then she takes it and she uses it to to wipe off the oil and to wash our Lord's feet. She was concerned about one thing, just one. She was singularly focused on expressing her love for Christ. And all she wanted was for Jesus to know her love. That's it. She didn't care about the money. She didn't care about her pride. She didn't care about her dignity. She didn't care what the men said. She didn't care about the rebukes. She wanted Christ to know how much she loved him. And he got it. He got it. So how do we know that? In Matthew 26, 13, in the parallel passage, Jesus said this. After she did this incredible anointing, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So what happened here that was so significant that whenever the gospel is preached throughout the entire world, Mary's name will be mentioned? What was it? It was pure love for the Savior. It was pure love for Christ. She held nothing back, so lavish, so over the top, That it would be remembered, and it is remembered. We preach about it today. We talk about this Mary and her love, and we think to ourselves, I know I do, why don't I love him like that? Why don't I love him like that? She held nothing back. It is remembered today. Her love expressed then the most glorious part about this, and because you know the gospel, you know this, it continues on forever. That love did not cease when Jesus died or when Mary died. This expression was an expression that goes on. And, and Mary 
she suffered in this moment. There was persecution in this moment for her loving Christ. But it was nothing compared to the infinite expression of love that she would have for Jesus forever. This sacrifice that took place here. Earlier in our Lord's ministry, many of you probably know this story of the rich young ruler who comes to Christ and he, he asks Jesus several questions. Jesus gives him the answers and then he says, there's one more thing you're lacking to this young man. He says, you must go sell your possessions and give them to the poor and then come follow me. But this young man was rich and he loved his money. The opportunity cost for this young man was too high. He said, I can't give up my money. And so he left, sorrowful. And so the disciples, as they're watching this, Peter asked the consummate question, which is the consummate question for us. Peter asked the Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? That's the opportunity cost question, the ultimate one. Lord, if I give up everything, if I give up everything and I follow you, what's going to happen? Because the opportunity cost of giving up everything is significant. Jesus said to them, because they wanted to know, was this a foolish decision? Judas renders that. We'll see that in a moment. Were we fools following you? We gave up our livelihood. We left our families and we're following you. Was this foolish? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, Everyone who has left houses, listen closely, saints, houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What do you lose on this side? You may lose everything on this side, but what do you gain? You gain Christ. You gain heaven. You gain eternity with the Father. True love. And you know this, it's always costly. It's always sacrificial. It's always painful to some degree. Jesus gave up everything to love you. He gave up everything. And to love Jesus, here are the hardest words you can hear. Ready? To love Jesus, you must give up everything too. You must. You must give up everything to follow him. For him to be your Lord and him to be your Savior and him to be your King the opportunity costs of following God now means that you can't follow the world, but it's so worth it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and following, he said this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then he said this, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever gives up his life for my sake, will find it, will live, will have life. So I pray the first thing we see in this passage is that real love is costly love, but it's worth it. It's sacrificial and painful, but it's so worth it. We may not see it now. Our eyes are so fixed on the now. How do I feel? How do I look? What do people think right now? This ends you too will enter a tomb. But the cost, the opportunity costs of following Christ now, what you give up now, they don't compare to what he promises us in the future. So you say, all right, well, if there are costs with love, then what about hate? Are there no costs with hate? There are costs with hate as well. Let's look at our next point, the cost of hate. What is the alternative of loving Christ? It's not loving Christ. What is the alternative of not following Christ? It's not following Christ, right? So what, is, what, what consequences and what opportunity costs happened here? Look back again with me. 
So Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The whole house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4, now look with me. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, Jesus, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I want you to notice something grammatical, and I don't do this a lot, but it's important. In verse 4, it says, but Judas... So you have this glorious display of Mary anointing the body, head, body, feet of our Lord, expressing this extravagant, over-the-top love for Jesus. And then, but Judas. It's an intentional emphasis in the Greek to show you, I'm going to show you the contrast to Mary, and that is Judas. I'm going to show you someone who hates God. Judas was part of this incredible probably most glorious inner circle ever known to man. He was called by Jesus by name to be one of the 12. Someone on the inside, a true insider with Jesus Christ. And and because he was on the inside, his betrayal is so grievous that the, the apostles, when they write of his name in the New Testament, you know they cannot refer to him without saying, the one that betrayed Jesus, the one that betrayed Jesus. It was such a sting because he's on the inside. and He's the one that turned Christ over. And John the apostle, he gives us a picture of Judas's heart here. He says, listen, he didn't care about the poor. Judas had control of the money bag. And that means he was sticking his hand and he was taking money out for himself for three years, likely. And here he had the opportunity for what? Fifty to $60,000 is slipping through his fingers. And so he rebukes Mary. How dare you waste that? You should have sold it. And then I could have taken it because I'm a thief. Truth be told is what Judas would have said. Now, at this point in time, Judas is fed up with Jesus. He's he's done. He's done in his heart. He's done in his mind. He spent three years following this, this teacher and this miracle worker from Nazareth around And his dream of Jesus being this perverted version of a a, a Messiah, a a son of David, who would come in and overthrow Rome and establish the preeminent reign of Israel once again, it was gone. Judas is seeing clearly this is not going to be the end for Christ. For three years he followed him, and now he's six days away from the execution that he would help take place. Judas realized this was a bad decision on his part. I mean, Jesus is not going to be this king that he wants him to be. He's he's already alienated all the Jewish leaders. He has a death warrant on his head. In Galilee, remember in John chapter 6, the Galileans wanted to make him king, and Jesus said no, so he's not going to be an earthly king. And Jesus has said multiple times, not only about his necessity, but the impending death that he would experience. So this king's going to die soon. And so for Judas to see all this money trickle down Jesus' head, body, and feet, it was too much. Because his thinking was, I've spent three years of my life following this man. I need to be compensated. Something needs to go into my pocket. I need restitution. So he didn't get it here. So what does he do? We're told in Matthew 26, immediately following this dinner in Simon the leper's house, 
he goes to the Sanhedrin. He goes. This is what we're told in Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. Judas went to the chief priests and he said, listen, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas walked with Christ for three years. He literally had the opportunity of a lifetime, not just to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but to be one of the 12 pillars of the church, to sit on a throne with Christ in eternity, reigning forever. And he gives all this up because the opportunity cost him were too much. He wanted it now. He wanted it here. And so instead of pursuing with Christ and following Christ, he turns against him and he sold, listen, he sold the Son of God, he sold God for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. That was an unequitable exchange. 30 pieces of silver for the Son of God. This is the same man who heard Jesus teach in Matthew 16, 26. Jesus said this, Judas heard it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For Judas, it was a simple answer. It was 30 pieces of silver Judas gave in return for his soul. How costly was his hatred for God and God's Son? How costly was it for him to go to the Sanhedrin and turn Christ over to be crucified on a Roman cross? Jesus tells us this. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, speaking of Judas, he said, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And then the Lord said, It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And then we're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 25, that Judas, who was called the Son of Destruction, that's his name, the Son of Destruction, he turned aside. He turned aside from following Christ to go to his own place. What was Judas' own place? It was hell. That was the place for Judas in his rejection and hatred of God and his son. My beloved, to hate God, which leads to your hatred for man, is the most costly endeavor you can engage in. The most costly thing that you can do, the most costly way that you can live your life is to have a hatred for God and a hatred for your fellow man. It destroys marriages. It destroys friendships. It brings nations to war. But the ultimate cost is not what happens here. If you hate God, the ultimate cost is your soul. You lose it forever. That's living a self-centered life. You say, well, what does it mean to hate God? It means rejecting God and not loving God. And doing what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. It means you being Lord, you being God. The opportunity costs for that are life. The opportunity cost of you hating God is giving up loving Him and loving His Son and loving one another. The eternal costs are hell. It's no different for us. And it was for Judas. It means being separated from God forever. That means no joy. That means no peace. That means no satisfaction of any kind. No community of any kind because you're isolated and you're alone in hell.
everything that is good and lovely and beautiful and worthy of praise is stripped from you. Now, usually when I make statements like this, many in their minds will say, is, is there something of moderation here? Because this, this seems so extreme. You may even say, I, I, I may not love God like Mary loves God, but I'd never turn him over to be crucified. And you may appease your conscience like that, or, or you may say something like, I'm not a follower of Christ, but I don't hate him. I, mean, I don't hate him. I don't, I don't want him dead. In fact, you might even say, I have no concern or care for him at all. I'm indifferent. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 30. The Son of God said this, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. I know this is hard, dear friends, but I, I want you to hear this because it is what is true. If you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you are not with him, then you are against him. If you're not participating in the great kingdom work of the redemption of fallen man, then you're working against that very kingdom and that king. Even if you're not conscious of it. Do you know to not love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the first and greatest commandment is the greatest sin? It is the greatest sin. So if you say, you know what, I I don't want to kill Jesus, I don't even care about Jesus, do you know how utterly wicked that is? Our hearts testify to this, and we know it to be true at a most basic level. If you don't love Christ, if you don't love Christ, then you hate him. And you may just hate him because you reject him. But there are costs attached to both. The cost of loving Jesus now, depending upon where you live, they may be high. Certainly it will require time and money. Your reputation Maybe your dignity, maybe your health, maybe friends and family will turn away from you if you truly pursue Christ. I'm not talking about playing religion. I'm not talking about going to church for an hour on Sunday and then living the life as a pagan. I'm talking about really running after Christ. You do that and it'll be hard even now. And I would argue in this cultural moment, in the next 10 years, it's going to be much more difficult to follow Jesus, much more difficult to get in your car on a Sunday morning and come to a church But Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Whatever cost that we have for following Christ now, they're nothing, literally nothing, in comparison to the eternal glory that God is going to bestow upon you in Christ. Nothing. I mean, the glory in Christ for you forever is beyond description. First of all, it's in his presence. That's enough. That's enough. But it's not just that. You're going to be called to participate in the community of the Trinity. You're going to be called to sit upon a throne and rule. You're going to be called to enjoy the community of the saints forever and ever. The glory, the majesty, the power you're in. Light and momentary troubles indeed we experience here on this side. And for a moment. There are costs to loving Christ, but the cost for hating Him You know, in our cultural moment, it it may be relatively painless. In fact, I would say that to hate Christ now might be advantageous for you in our culture. 
30 pieces of silver for you. Certainly becoming a comrade of the world. Certainly being approved by most political and social movements today, anti-Christ. In fact, to reject Christ and reject the church and reject the law of God and to reject morality is considered somewhat virtuous today. We don't want black and white. We want lots of gray. So if you're black and white on anything, then you're not being virtuous. To reject Christ now will provide you with a strange perception of freedom. Right? I mean, if there is no God, then there is no right and wrong, ultimately. There isn't. It's only what we make up. And that means that you can be God and you can say what you want to say when you want to say it. You can do what you want to do when you want to do it. You can live your life as you see fit, for better or for worse. You can do that. But the eternal costs of rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord, of hating God, of not loving Him, they're, they're unspeakable. There are passages in Scripture. I'm going to read to you just one. That when, when I read these, there's part of my insight shakes, and there's a terror, and there should be. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and following. 2 Peter 2, the apostle says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, you know, there is no salvation for angels. Those who have fallen, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, then the Lord knows how, listen, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That is an unbearable cost. It is an unspeakable cost. And that's how a hatred for God always ends, in judgment. A hatred for God now leads to a hatred of God for all eternity. A hatred for God now leads to you coming before the most holy God, the judgment seat of God, without Christ. And it means your eternal condemnation. You will go to your own place, and you will join Judas. You will join Satan and the demons and every other man, every other man, woman, and child who in their life rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you don't believe me now, if you think this is, this is extreme, black and white, eternal cost, garbage, then you will find out one day. We will all find out one day. So there are costs to loving, there are costs to hating. I want to show you one more cost, and I'll close. The cost of discipleship. If you love Christ and you're going to follow Him, there are costs attached to that too. Look at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, where? At Simon the leper's house. They came, not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You remember back in chapter 11, the Sanhedrin's great concern was that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that many were going to go and believe in him because this miracle was the consummate pinnacle miracle thus far. Four days dead in the tomb, four days decomposing, and Christ came and he calls him out. Well, the Sanhedrin's fears are being realized. The masses, they want to go. 
and they want to get a gander of Christ. They want to see this guy, and they also want to see Lazarus. What a conversation that would be with Lazarus. So, Lazarus, what were you doing for those four days? Where were you, Lazarus? Tell us about it. I mean, I would have gone, wouldn't you? I want to talk to this Jesus, and I want to talk to Lazarus too. Lazarus was the incontrovertible testimony to the deity and godship of Jesus Christ. And the Sanhedrin knew it. So what did they do? What does evil always do? They had to expand their plan. Remember, Caiaphas said to the Sanhedrin, it would be better for us if one man dies so that the nation may not perish. Start with one man. Let's kill one man. Let's kill Jesus to save ourselves. And now that plan grows. Right now, it's got to be two. We got to kill Jesus and we got to kill Lazarus. Leon Morris said this in his commentary. He put it so well. He says, it's, it is interesting to reflect that Caiaphas had said, is it expedient for you, the Sanhedrin, that one man die for the people? And then Morris writes, but one was not enough. Now it had to be two. And then he says, thus does evil grow. It always grows like that. This plan to kill one had to be two, and then two to be four, and then four to be eight, and so on. Evil goes, and evil grows. Lazarus had died, verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. He had died, and he had risen, and now people were going, and they were believing. It's such a a glorious testimony. This, This new murder plan is grievous, but it's so glorious at the same time because Lazarus's testimony People were believing in the Christ. My beloved, I I want to make a very bold statement. Our lives should be the same. Should they not? Our lives should have the same impact today as Lazarus had in his time. If you're a believer in Christ, then you were dead and God made you alive. You were in the tomb And God called you out, and you truly are a spectacle in this world amongst whom only dead people live. And it's a spiritual calling so much greater than Lazarus being raised physically. You've been raised spiritually, not only to live now, but forever. You've become a royal priest. You become part of the holy nation of God. You've been set apart, the Bible says, for God's own glory. Your purpose in life is to glorify God. And that means something simple. If you're truly pursuing Jesus Christ, I mean, you're running after him. You're growing in your wisdom and knowledge of him daily. You're growing in holiness daily. You're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit daily. You're in your word, you're in prayer, you're in community, you're in church, you are exercising the gifts that God has given you to give. If this is happening to you, then you know what? You too will lead many to Christ. And just like Lazarus, many will believe on Jesus because of your testimony. What a glorious thing that will be. Someday, in your pursuit of Christ, and your love for Christ to stand, you'll come before him and he will say, look at all these people. And you'll say, what, Lord? What about them? And he'll say, these people saw you. These people heard you. These people watched the way that you live. They saw your love and they saw your sacrifice and they came to me. You saw all these people. When? You say, your whole life. Your whole life. Becoming a living testimony to the power of God to make someone who's dead alive. 
Christ commands us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and what? And glorify your Father in heaven. Let them see it. Let them see you like Lazarus, dead now alive, in sin and now free, wholly unrighteous and now being made righteous day by day in the glory of Christ. Let people see that. Let people know that. I'll ask you, is your life like that? Is it? Are are you being used by God so that people see Christ? Do the dominions of darkness say, we got to get that one? We got to shut them down. Because day by day, they're growing in holiness. Their, Their speech is changing. The way they think is changing. The way they live, it's all changing. And it's bringing all these people around them to look at God and see God and see Christ. We've got to shut that one down. If you are, I praise God for that. And if you are, you will be attacked. You will be attacked. They wanted Lazarus dead because Lazarus became an undeniable living testimony to the power of Christ. So he too had to die. Let's kill the Savior, and let's kill Lazarus, and let's kill anybody else that testifies to him. If you have been made alive in Christ, then Satan, his minions, this world, some of your own friends and family, and your own flesh want you to stop. They want you dead. Physically, maybe, but certainly spiritually, they want you to stop. All this talk about Christ, all this talk about being born again, all this talk about this glorious God of yours, they want you to stop it. So we should expect the persecution. We should expect the suffering. We should expect people to come after us and hate us and want us to stop. Jesus made this very clear to his disciples. We'll look at this in a few weeks. In John 15, 20, he said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, what? They will persecute you also. You ever hear a gospel that talks about how your life's going to be fantastic and easy from here on out? It's a false gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has come, repent, and follow Jesus Christ. Love him, be loved by him, and things are going to get hard. Things should get hard. We live in a dark place, in a fallen world, amongst sinners. We too still struggle with our sin. And so this walk of holiness, this narrow gospel road is hard and persecution will come. It is my hope that it will not cause you to step back or be afraid. God says over and over in the Old and New Testament, I'll give you one from Isaiah 41. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Right? If you're following Christ, then Christ is with you. God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that righteous right hand is Christ. God the Father promises to uphold you, not with some strange supernatural power, but with his own son. I will uphold you. When examining this passage, we can make some great mistakes. This dialogue with Jesus and Mary and Judas. More often times than not, when we look at it, we want to say, well, I'm Mary. I love Jesus like that. 
He said, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm Lazarus. I've been raised from the dead, and I follow Christ so faithfully that people want to kill me. You know where you got to start in this passage, don't you? You know who you are first in this passage. You're Judas. I say that in love. I'm Judas before Christ. We're all Judas. We all start with a hatred for God. We are born that way, and we live that way. And until God makes us alive and forgives us of our sins and gives us the righteousness of Christ, that is the disposition of our heart. We have hearts like Judas. And every human being, young and old, apart from Christ, has at some point in their life and then for the remainder of their life sold their soul to the devil. Maybe not for 30 pieces of silver, Maybe it was for that academic degree. Maybe it was for a job. Maybe it was for that, that wife or that husband or those children you cannot have. Maybe it was something like that. Maybe it was something as simple as you're in crisis, and instead of turning to God, you turn to someone or something else to solve the crisis. Maybe it was just for you simply living as Lord of your own life. We all start with hearts like Judas. And the love we see here of Mary lavishly being poured out upon Jesus Christ, it should cause, it shouldn't say, well, that's me. It should be us, cause us to cast our eyes to heaven and see the love that God the Father poured out on us in Christ. You want to talk about a type and shadow, infinitely more, and I mean that literally, infinitely more than the love expressed by Mary in anointing Jesus' body on that Sabbath day. Infinitely more, God the Father has expressed his love for us by taking his son and like that alabaster jar of oil, breaking his body and pouring out his blood on us. He's anointed you with the blood of his son. That is the ultimate expression of love by the Father to fallen man. The ultimate expression. That God the Father would send his son from heaven to earth to die for a sinner like me or you. To, to take the punishment that we rightly deserve, that full vengeance, that line of that song, that the full vengeance came down upon Christ. Why? So that we might live. So that we wouldn't perish. So that we would not be considered like Judas, sons of destruction. But instead, we'd become sons and daughters of a king. That we'd be called into his kingdom. That we would be his. And then you would, in Christ, Begin to love like Mary. I, I want to love like I want to love Jesus like Mary. I do. I want I want to have in my life that uncompromised, total outpouring of my love for Christ every day. I'm I'm not close yet, but I want to be. In Christ, you can be. I want to be like Lazarus. I want my life daily. To be sanctified by God daily in such a way that my life so reflects the glory of God that people want to kill me. I'm not close yet, but I want to be. God can do that through us. God can give us a love that is unexplainable. God can give us a fidelity that is hated by the world. I, I want to be able to be persecuted and rejoice in it. I want people to say things and do things out of my love for Christ and rejoice in it. You know, in Acts chapter 5, after the apostles were beaten by the Sanhedrin for testifying to Christ, they said, stop talking about him. So they beat him. They beat all of them. 
this is what they say. This is what we're told by Luke in Acts 5, 41. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for his name, they what? They rejoiced. They rejoiced. They were beaten and they rejoiced. Why? Because they were counted worthy for his name's sake. They were suffering for the Savior. They counted the cost. They looked at the opportunity costs of not following Christ. And they said, we do not want damnation. We do not want condemnation. We want life. So they counted the cost and they followed Christ and they were persecuted and they rejoiced over it. My beloved, there are costs to loving God. There are costs to hating God. All life is filled with costs. Opportunity cost, eternal cost, our entire life, the Bible, time, and experience tell us this to be true. The question for us this morning, and I'll close on this, it's simple. It's simple. Listen. What are the costs attached to your faith? What are they? If love has cost, if hate has cost, if discipleship has cost, if there's cost to all of our life, what costs are attached to your faith this morning? Judas rejected Christ. He had been called by Christ. He was brought in as one of the twelve, and he rejected Christ. The cost for Judas in rejecting the Savior was his own place. It is hell. He is experiencing in part and awaiting the final judgment when God comes again in the glory and his son is seated upon the throne and he will take Judas and Satan and the demons and all who reject the Savior, who all who refuse to be saved, he will take them and he will throw them into the lake of fire, which is the second death. It is eternal death. It is hell. The costs for him were, listen, they were, they are, and they forever will be judgment. Mary, but Mary, let's reverse verse 4, but Mary. Mary loved Christ. Mary loved God. What were the consequences for that? Certainly significant in her lifetime, there was persecution. There was opposition, and I imagine after our Lord rose from the dead, that she and Martha and Lazarus, very difficult times. We don't have the story, but I'm sure it was hard. You can't express your love for Christ like that in a culture that hates him so much and not be persecuted. But she looked at the opportunity costs and she saw that the persecution now was temporary. And so where is Mary now? I'm not speaking about a dead woman, by the way. I'm speaking about someone who's more alive than you or I are right this moment. She is with her beloved Savior in his presence She is worshiping him. She's loving him. She's being loved by him. She's in his throne room. And if she thought that fragrance in Simon's house, when she opened up that bottle, was fantastic, she is now smelling and enjoying and rejoicing in the glory and majesty of her king. That's what she's doing right now. She knew 2,000 years ago the cost of rejecting Christ, eternal And she knew that loving him, eternal as well. God desires every single one of you sitting in this room right now. He desires for you to not have the cost attached with hate, but the cost attached with 
love. The cost of hatred towards God, it's death, eternal death. The cost of love, which is hard, loving God, pursuing Christ, following Him daily, here, it's life. It's that black and white. That means, my beloved, if you do not know Christ, then I, I, I call you to repent in love. I call you in love to repent this morning. You say, well, what does that mean? That means you come before God and you recognize Him as God. You recognize Christ as the Savior. You recognize yourself as a sinner that needs to be saved. And you confess with your mouth. Say, Lord, forgive me for sinning my whole life. Forgive me for rejecting you as God my whole life. Forgive me for hating your son, just like Judas. Forgive me of that. And if it is a true confession and a true turning, God never turns a single soul away who seeks mercy through his son. Not one. Not one. He will forgive you. And he won't just forgive you. He will will bless you with the Holy Spirit. He will give you the righteousness of his son. You will be born again, and you will have, for the first time, an understanding of what this love really is, because it's Christ. It's Him. And by God's grace, you will grow in that love, and by God's grace, you will be persecuted, and by God's grace, when you're persecuted, you will rejoice. You rejoice in that. I beseech you to put your trust in Christ this morning, that your end might not be that of Judas, but be that of Mary. I pray that for you. I pray it for myself. I pray it for all those sitting in a church this morning hearing the gospel of grace. That God would reveal that to them. I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to have a chance to take the Lord's Supper. Pastor Kurt's going to come up and preside over it. And as we do, I want you to contemplate that God the Father, just like Mary broke that alabaster jar, she, God the Father, broke son's body and spilled his blood that we might be anointed by him that we might love him let's pray heavenly father we freely admit that we do not love you like mary more oftentimes than not even in our safe state we have more anger and hatred towards you like Judas than that of a soul saved by grace. Forgive us for that, Father, I pray. Lord, show us your Son that we might see him clearly. It just takes a glimpse of the Savior. Just seeing him to draw us in. We want to make wise choices in light of these eternal consequences. We know we cannot make those choices unless we are born again by your spirit. So be gracious with us, Father, I pray. Show us yourself this morning. Show us yourself during this Lord's Supper as we take the bread and the juice that represent his broken body and his spilled blood. Show us yourself, Lord. We know we live in a very dark place. and We know that it's only by your grace that we can see you and come in to your hiding place. We ask that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.